If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 25. And this morning when uh, Naomi was baptized, and whenever someone in our church is baptized, we always speak of how that act is both a proclamation and a picture. That like when you are coming to be baptized, you are proclaiming to the world, I have trusted by faith in Christ. Like I am a sinner, I know I cannot save myself, and I'm trusting in what Jesus has done, His life, which gives me righteousness, imputed to me, His life, His death, His resurrection, I am taking that and that alone to be what makes me right before the Father. And so that's what you are proclaiming. You're proclaiming, I am now Christ, united with Him. But you're also picturing that. Like when you are, go under the baptismal waters, you're picturing like the old you know, self is, is dead and a new self has been raised to walk in the newness of life. And so it's a proclamation and a picture. And when we come to Exodus chapter 25, we're getting in, just continuing in that kind of unknown section of Exodus that we're not as familiar with. And when we come into that, sometimes we can get bogged down like reading about the tabernacle with all the, all the thread and all the gold and all the acacia wood and all the specifics of how everything comes together. But like baptism, we need to remember that the whole section is laced with symbolism. And so just like baptism, the tabernacle also pictures something and proclaims something. Right? It pictures something and proclaims something. And in particular, what it pictures, like it's not just a provisional, symbolic place of sacrifice. It actually pictures the gospel. And so number one in your notes, if you just want to go ahead and get started with that, you can write down the tabernacle pictures the gospel. And so in a lot of ways, you can think of the tabernacle kind of like a, a, a pop-up book. Right, like if you remember those from when you were a kid, uh, Eden's one of Eden's favorite movies is Trolls, and in <laughs> you heard, and in Trolls you have the main character. Like how many of you have seen Trolls, you kids? Right, how many of your parents have seen it at least ten times? Yeah, if you've seen it once, you've seen it a lot. But even for those of you who haven't seen it, the main character is Princess Poppy. And she's just bubbly, high energy, super, super happy all the time. And she creates, she makes these uh, all kinds of like elaborate cards, but particularly like pop-up books and pop-up cards. And, um, and you know, just like the, the, the way, you, as we think about the tabernacle, you can almost think of it as a, as a pop-up book in a way. Like it, I've got this tabernacle pop-up book, but then each element within the tabernacle, each piece of furniture is like another page you turn where things pop up off the page and show you in 3D various aspects of the gospel. The tabernacle pictures the gospel. And so we're going to see five in particular. We're going to examine five in, in particular, like pages of the pop-up book this morning. And then at the end, we'll talk about the tabernacle kind of as a whole, what it proclaims. So we'll talk about what it pictures. We'll talk about what it proclaims. To get us started, let's read a little bit. Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1, we'll read the first 22 verses just to get us going. And so remember, Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai. There's fire, there's smoke, there's thunder, there's lightning. And far more dangerous than Everest, he goes into that vortex to hear from the Lord. Verse 20, chapter 25, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, 
speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold and silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And so just remember, where did they get all this gold? Where did they get all this silver? Where did they get all... The Egyptians like gave it to them. They're like, please leave. Please get out. We're tired of everything dying. Like, please leave. We'll give you gold. We'll give you silver. Just get out. So the Lord provided and He's saying, hey, return a portion of what I've given you to me. I did generosity and giving. Verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And so here comes our first pop-up page, our first pop-up picture. The Ark of the Covenant. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. So it's going to be 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. A cube. A rectangular cube. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. Shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. These are the Ten Commandments. God's already given them verbally. He's going to give them in a written form on stone in the chapters to come. And he's saying, hey, put those inside of it. Also inside of the Ark of the Covenant, we know like in Hebrews, um, manna was also placed inside as well as Aaron's staff that budded. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make the cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, like bowed down. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And, and there... I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so again, the first pop-up picture is the Ark of the Covenant. So Indiana Jones fans, like here we go, Ark of the Covenant. And what the Ark of the Covenant pictures, letter A in your notes, the Ark of the Covenant pictures God's holiness and our hope okay god's holiness and our hope and some from a from a holiness standpoint uh, those of you who were here when we preached through first and second samuel and if you got a background in the church you probably know the answer anyhow what happens if you touch the ark 
you die. That's what happened to Uzzah. Uzzah thought that he was cleaner than the dirt of the ground, so he tried to keep it from hitting, but he was wrong. The dirt's more pure than we are, so he died. You cannot come into contact with holiness like that. And so you die. And then also we talked about like, you know, it was temporarily captured by the Philistines at one point. And when it went into their camp, what happened was all their statue gods broke. They fell down. Their heads popped off. Their hands popped off. Mice consumed everything in the field. People broke out with tumors. Like just, you don't trifle with the holiness of God. I, even in the ridiculousness of the Indiana Jones movies, like the, even they got that. Like you got people's faces melting off, you've got lightning shooting through people and all that, but still, it's just like, you don't trifle with the holiness of God. And then just kind of further highlighting God's holiness, on top of the ark is what's known as the mercy seat. Like, it's God's throne. It's a seat. It's God's throne. It's, you remember, the, the ark of the covenant is the only piece of furniture that's in the Holy of Holies within the temple. We'll see a picture of that here in a little bit. But it's the place that's separated off from the rest of the temple by a four-inch thick curtain, right? And on that curtain are sewn two cherubim. Just like on the ark, there's two cherubim on the outside. And they're bowed down. Their wings are out. They can't even look at, upon God. The whole, like these super powerful, majestic warriors of light cannot even look upon God's blazing holiness. This is the holiness of God. But the cherubim highlight God's holiness also in a couple of other ways. Because we've met them before. Like if we're in Exodus 25, we've seen them before. And it's back in Genesis 3. And what the cherubim do here, as well as there is they guard the entrance into the presence of God. They guard the entrance into the presence of God. That's why they're on the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. That's why they're on top of the mercy seat. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you see them doing the exact same thing. Because Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Like He created everything and He made a garden. And in that garden, the Garden of Eden, He placed Adam and Eve, and it was good. But then Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They fractured God's good creation. They marred the shalom. And because of that, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Because of that, all of us inherit a sin nature. And so they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. They were expelled from the presence of God because He walked with them in the Garden. But now they're not pure. Now they're sinful. And they're, so they're separated from the holiness of God. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 says this. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so as David Strain puts it, everything about the ark so far screams exclusion. The law contained within the ark condemned everyone who broke its statutes. The gold encasing it spoke of royal splendor and majesty. The cherubim covering it recalled the Garden of Eden and our exclusion from the presence of God because of our sin. And the mercy seat is considered to be the very throne of God and it's shut from our view by the wings of the angels. And so the holiness of God 
Like the message is clear. The holiness of God shuts us out. And yet, this is the very place where atonement was made. Like right there on the throne, right there between the two cherubim, right there, impure sinners like me and like you are pardoned and reconciled to God. And that's why the ark not only pictures the holiness of God, but also our hope. Because watch this. There's an, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. When it translates the mercy seat, the word that it used in Greek is the word propitiation. Right? Which just means a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. And that word is the word that is used constantly to describe the work of Jesus. And so the Ark of the Covenant is picturing the Gospel. It's pointing forward to Jesus. God's holiness, yes, but also our hope. And so that idea of propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation, mercy seat, for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, mercy seat, by His blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, mercy seat. For the sins of the people, First John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, mercy seat, for our sins. And so, yes, the ark pictures the holiness of God, but friends, it also preaches Christ to us. He, he bridges the gap between the holiness of God that shuts us out. He bridges the gap between the holiness of God and our sinfulness. He is the propitiation for our law-breaking. He is our hope. And so, the, again, the Ark of the Covenant pictures God's holiness. Like, touch it, you die, holiness. And our hope. Alright, now, turning the, the page to the next pop-up picture that comes at us. Uh, and that's the table of bread. And so letter B in your notes, we'll try to pick up the pace a little bit. Letter B in your notes, the bread of the table pictures God's provision. Right? The bread of the table pictures God's provision, like practically and spiritually. Like practically, He's been providing bread for them, right? Manna from heaven, it's raining down. He's going to do that for 40 years. He's been doing it for about... Six, twelve weeks now, he's going to keep it up. He provides. We pray the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That's like literal provision. We need to eat. Lord, please provide for us. And he does. But man is not meant to live on bread alone. And so the true bread that this bread points to is the bread of life. And Jesus says in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So let me just ask you, are you are you hungry for more from life? Like you, are you dissatisfied with life? Are you looking for something, some place to get joy? Like you, there's something that you're, there's a hunger in your soul that you is just not satisfied. You need the bread of life. That's what you are hungering for. And you have a gazillion God replacements you try to use and try to figure out. But what you're hungering for is the bread of life. We have an eternity-sized hole, Ecclesiastes tells us, that cannot be filled under the sun. It needs something from beyond the sun. It needs the bread of life. Your idols cannot nourish you. They will break down every single time. You need the bread of life. And the bread of life has come for you. Whoever comes to Him shall not hunger. Whoever comes to Him shall not thirst. That's pop-up letter B. The table for bread. Turning the page, we get another one. Pops up at us. It's the lampstand. Alright? It's the lampstand. So letter C in your notes. The lampstand pictures God's light shining in the darkness. Again, all these things are pop-up pictures to show us various aspects of the gospel. And this is showing us the light Right? This lampstand, though, is not one you can go pick up at Target, right? Even if you want to upgrade and like go to Kirkland's or something, you can't get a lampstand like this there. It's 75 pounds of pure gold. I looked it up. $1.4 million is what that would cost. But beyond just like the, the, the price and the, it kind of looks like a menorah, like all, beyond all of that, the whole point of this, like it's picturing the gospel, pop up pictures. And it represents the fact that God is light. That does not extinguish. Never goes out. And there, in Him there is no darkness at all. But the symbolism of it again points most clearly to Christ. Because Christ says, John chapter 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life in Him. And then Angela read John chapter 1, verse 5 earlier. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so, just chat, chatting with me for a minute. Whether you're a believer, a non-believer, uh, skeptic, uh, Seeker, wanderer, agnostic on these things. I think we can all agree, and I think we all would agree, that the world is a pretty dark place. Now you look around the world, moral confusion, political chaos, rockets being fired, right? You've got children abandoned, trafficking, like it's a dark place.
but tweaking a famous quote, for every one look at the darkness, let us take ten looks at the light of the world. The light cannot be overcome by the darkness. And even in your own life, the present darkness you face in your life right now, whatever that is, it cannot overcome the light. And so you drag that, that, that thing, that habit, that sin, drag it into the light. And now there's no more fear of it being hid. Now it's in the light. Now the Lord can deal with it. The light cannot be overcome by the darkness. And so don't push off the Lord who is trying to do work in your life. Don't, don't say, I don't want that. I don't want, like, don't push him off again. His gracious offer to heal you and make you whole, to bring you out of the darkness you're living in. Don't push him off. He is the light that each one of us so desperately need. Each one of us. Don't sit and think so and so needs the light. No, I need the light. Cling to him, right? And yes, point one another to him. But we each need him, okay? Letter D, all right, page four, as it were, in our book, our pop-up tabernacle book. Next image that pops up with us is all about the bronze altar. And this is something that actually sat outside the temple in the courtyard. And basically, according to Exodus 27, it's just a jumbo-sized fire pit like you've got in your backyard, except it's covered in bronze, right? It's just a big old huge fire pit. But its whole purpose, what in at all what you use your fire pit for with marshmallows and hot dogs and just hanging out with friends? Its purpose was horrid. Its purpose was ugly. Its purpose was sacrifice. And we talk about sacrifice and we throw the word around, yeah, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. But like the actual literal like happening of a sacrifice is awful. It's ugly, it's like, you probably haven't, but maybe you've seen uh, an animal get its throat slit, right? So you got a sheep, you got a, you got a lamb, and it's bah, bah, and you slit its throat, and it's ah, ah, eyes are frantic, fall, going nuts till it falls over, collapses, bleeds out. Not a pretty sight, not fun, right? And then you set it on fire. Have you ever smelled your hair burning? Like, Yankee Candle has no like hair burning scent that they have in their catalog. It's disgusting. So you set the sheep on fire with all its wool. It doesn't smell good. And the priests, they've got to sprinkle blood. They've got to do all this. Their hands are dripping. Their el- it's running off their elbows. It's all over the curtains. It's smeared on the corners of the bronze altar. It's on their clothes. Like, it's not a pretty sight. And I'm not trying, maybe I did, but I'm not trying to make you not desire lunch, but I am trying to help you see, like, it's ugly. It's not fun. And that's the whole point of the bronze altar. Letter D, the bronze altar pictures the ugliness of sin. It pictures the ugliness of sin. Like this is like what our sin is. It's this death and 
stench and nastiness. It takes blood. But that, again, only points forward, once again, to Christ. Because He is the one who came and offered His sinless life as a once-for-all-time sacrifice for sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it was brutal, and it was bloody, and it was gory, and it was ugly, but far worse than the visible ruthlessness of the Romans was the invisible wrath of God. The wrath of God for my sin, your sin, was placed in full on Jesus willingly. Which just serves to highlight how much He loves us. He's not tolerating us. Like He he didn't have to do this. The fact that He did it, like since Jesus died for us in our place, willingly should cause us to never question, well, does He really love me? He didn't have to go. But He did. Knowing everything that you would ever do, Every God-belittling moment, every you know, thoughtless transgression, every like on purpose, I don't care, God, I'm going to do this. Yes, you're convicting me, but I forget it. I'm doing my thing because I want to do it. Spit in your face. Jesus died for that. Because He loves you. Like, right where you're at. Not some, make sure you understand here, make-believe, never-going-to-happen, imaginary, future version of yourself where you're awesome. You're never going to... It's not going to happen. But Jesus did that because He loves you right now. And so feel Christ's love that He would endure the cross. But don't forget the ugliness of sin. The cost that it was. And then our final pop-up page is not actually a piece of furniture, but just open space. It's the court. You can see it on the screen. It's the courtyard around the temple. Okay, But, but here's the thing about the courtyard around the temple. You can see it up there. It's tiny. It's small. Like I, I worked out the cubits and everything. It's 11,260 square feet. That's smaller than this building. Not this room, but this building. And so you got like over a million people and you got this tiny little courtyard. Like that's not going to work. A million people in this building, like it's not happening, right? It's just not going to happen. And so again, you have this idea of exclusion. Like you can't come in. And then by the time you get to, to Jesus, the tabernacle has been replaced by a more permanent temple and they've expanded the courts. There's the court of this and the court of this and the court of this and the court of this. And the furthest one away from the Holy of Holies is the court of the Gentiles where non-Jewish people could come who maybe wanted to, you know, maybe they're God-fearers or they just wanted to kind of be around that. And there's a literal sign on the, the wall that separates the court of the Gentiles from everything else that says, Hey, Gentiles, you step foot in here and we kill you. Exclusion. Can't come in. But then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 and 19. For He Himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall. The wall that keeps us... Broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens, like one, one people, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so when Jesus died and rose again, the message ceased to be keep out and instead became come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me. There's more room in the household of God, which is the church. Which means like for us here, Providence Baptist Church, there is no one like who is to be excluded from our fellowship because all everybody's welcome here to attend because the blood of Christ can cleanse anyone. And so what the court of the tabernacle is, is showing us, what it pictures is the full people of God. It's pointing forward to this day when this small little courtyard will be replaced by a metaphorical ginormous one, the new heavens and the new earth that all people can fit in. And so the court of the tabernacle pictures the full people of God. It pictures Revelation 7-9. It's pointing forward to this. It won't be small. It'll be huge and a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, nation, people, and language standing there before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This it's what the pop-up pages of the, little, of the book of the tabernacle are showing us. All these glimpses of the gospel. All these different elements. Each one popping off the page. The tabernacle pictures the gospel. Like baptism though, it not only pictures, it also proclaims something. And what it proclaims is something pretty crazy. Something absolutely amazing. If you're still in your Bible, in Exodus 25, look at verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Like the, the huge, big point of the tabernacle. The message it's proclaiming overall, number two in your notes, the tabernacle proclaims that God dwells with us. God is pleased to dwell with His people. That is what it's proclaiming. And it's a stunning statement. Like the God of the universe, holy, majestic, all-powerful, is pleased to take up residence and dwell with His people. I mean, it's like God is basically saying, if my people are going to be nomads in the wilderness living in tents, then I will be right there in the midst of them, in a tent. I will be with them. He wants to be, He is pleased to be with His people. I mean, the God of the universe, it's crazy, asks for a tent to be built so that He might dwell 
His presence might particularly dwell in the midst of his people. And so the tabernacle is proclaiming this, but it's proclaiming it. Again, all these things are looking forward to Jesus. And so this proclamation here is like black and white, like analog. Jesus shows up and it goes full color, 4K, ultra high definition, because Jesus shows up, John chapter 1, verse 14, Angela read it a little earlier, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And literally, like the word dwelt there in Greek is tabernacle. Like it is, that is the, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Like that's what Jesus has done. He has come to live with us. This is what the tabernacle is proclaiming that God is with us. And it's something Jesus really wants us to get because. Like when he was born, and they called his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. After he dies and resurrects, he's standing on the mountain, he's about to ascend, he gives the great commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am what? With you. How long? Always. Hebrews 13, 7, or 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Since God has come to tabernacle with us. Like through the Holy Spirit, He indwells us. This morning, know that. I know that. God, like the parting the sea God, the fire on the mountain God, the plagues raining down, heaven or manna from heaven. God is pleased to dwell with you. To take up residence in your heart. My heart, Christ's home, little booklet, really good. Which means... If you're in Christ, you are never alone. Never. You may feel alone, but the Lord dwells with you. And so for those of you, like this time, graduation's happening, life change is happening for a lot of people, things are different. And maybe you're anxious about something. For those of you who are dominated by fear, what ifs, let this truth be the balm of Gilead to your soul. That God is with you. At Psalm 139, there's nowhere you can go in space or time where He is not present. Whatever you're going through, He's not absent. He doesn't take an off day, He never sleeps nor slumbers. He's with you. 
And so you can trust Him even when you don't understand what may be going on, like how is this going to work, and, and trying to anticipate or control the future or figure that, like you can trust Him. Why? Because Exodus 34, 6, He is merciful. He is gracious. He is abounding. Super important word. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You can trust Him. And it's not just that God knows what's coming in the future for your life. He's already there. Loving you. Providing for you. Taking care of you. And right now, preparing you. And so as Dane Ortland put it in the book, Gentle and Lowly, when the relationship goes sour, when the feeling of futility comes flooding in again, when it feels like life is just passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when that longtime friend lets us down, when a loved one betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we're laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of this world closes in on us and makes us just want to throw in the towel, it is there, right there, that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us and who is with us. Emmanuel. Never, ever absent. Never leaves. Never forsakes. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique to you, was endured by Christ in the past and is shouldered by Him in the present. Cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He shoulders that. That's the hope of God dwelling, tabernacling, indwelling us. He's here. He's with us. He dwells with us. And so Christian, take heart. Take heart in the midst of crazy things, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of darkness, the light will overcome it. Take heart. In Christ, He tabernacles with us right now. You're never alone. And so whenever going forward, you're in a Bible study, you're reading the Word, you're talking with someone, and you hear the word tabernacle, you hear the word temple, let it serve as like a pop-up book in your own mind of the gospel and of the fact that Christ, like God, is with us. He is pleased to dwell with His people. And He does so always. Never stops. Even to the end of the age. The tabernacle is not just a place of provisional and symbolic sacrifice. It's a, the picture of the gospel and the proclamation that God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these tender truths that remind us of your tender care, that you're never absent, you're never 
on an off day. You never call in sick for work. You never need a mental health day. You are constant. You are present. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Would you sink these truths deep in our hearts so that in the days to come when the darkness creeps back in, we remember you are the light of the world and the darkness cannot overcome the light. When that gnawing, what, trying to find something to make us whole comes in, we remember, no, I will not eat the devil's bread. I will eat the bread of life. Jesus is the only one that nourishes our souls. We would remember that when we are alone and we feel isolated and we feel no one understands us and we feel everything's going wrong, we would remember that you, oh God, are with us. You're caring for us. Even when we can't feel it, see it, have an experience. Our experiences don't dictate truth. Truth is truth. You are with us. And nothing will separate us from your love. Nothing. You will see us through. You are gracious and kind, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Sink this truth deep in our hearts that we might be changed. And that we might run to our one hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.